Thought Leadership Studio. You're listening to Thought Leadership Studio, the podcast that helps you master high-level positive mass influence to create distinctive business niches, captivate an audience, grow your following, and change the game by changing the frame with strategic thought leadership. Thought Leadership Studio. Welcome to Thought Leadership Studio. I'm your host, Chris McNeil, and this is episode 53, interview with Dr. Brian Sullivan, recognizing opportunities for innovation and bringing them to life, humanizing data gathering, and making the subjective objective. What this episode will do for you is help you gain insight into seizing innovation opportunities by gaining profound insight into Dr. Sullivan's journey where he spotted an opportunity for groundbreaking innovation. Recognizing innovation potential and effectively communicating its benefits can drive success in any marketplace. The paradigm shift of Emoti, which is a revolutionary platform to uncover determinants of health ranging from stress to anxiety to depression, but we also discuss its possibilities in providing feedback for positive states like focus and confidence. Explore how this innovation is not just changing healthcare, but could also redefine the landscape of subjective information gathering in general. The self-assessment superpower uncovered a transformative potential of emotive self-assessment feature and understand how encouraging individuals to evaluate their emotional states can lead to improved self-regulation and can be a catalyst for driving positive change. Explore the symphony of thought and feeling and embrace a paradigm shift as we explore the profound connection between emotions and cognition. Dr. Sullivan illuminates the concept that our minds operate as orchestras where thoughts and feelings harmonize to drive actions, decisions, and effective communication strategies. Now, before we dive more deeply, just a reminder about what this podcast is for. Thought Leadership Studio is a workshop in strategic positive influence. So you can consider this podcast an ongoing workshop to help you attain even more peak performance in your thought leadership. Think of the episodes as your library for self-training as a high-performing thought leader. And before I dive into this further, I want to remind you that if you're listening on an app, check out the link in the episode description and that will take you to the episode page on thoughtleadershipstudio.com which has extra resources a different perspective that which fits better on a web page than on an audible podcast episode to fill out your learning in this area as well as links to some free offers so in this episode we meet dr brian sullivan and discuss Innovating Healthcare with Emoti. He's a seasoned clinical psychologist with over 25 years of experience and is at the forefront of healthcare innovation. He holds a doctorate in clinical psychology and a master's degree from the Florida Institute of Technology along with a bachelor's in psychology from Clemson University. 
so his education background is as impressive as his career. Dr. Sullivan's recent notable achievement is Emoti, a platform developed by ADOH Scientific that enables putting numbers on the reporting of subjective states with a current focus on scalable distribution for population health research. But we also discuss its potential in other areas on the podcast. Aside from his pioneering work with Emoti, Dr. Sullivan owns LifeWorks in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, and is an adjunct professor of psychology at the College of Charleston. In this episode, we dive into the transformative potential of Emoti and the process of taking a vision effectively to market. So join us now for an insightful conversation with a healthcare visionary. Thought Leadership Studio. So I'm your host, Chris McNeil of Thought Leadership Studio, and I'm sitting here with Dr. Brian Sullivan, who's a licensed clinical psychologist, but he's also the chief science officer and the originator of the technology behind Emoti, a new app um, being unleashed to the world by ADOH Scientific. Welcome, Dr. Sullivan. Great to have you here. Thanks, Chris. So... What inspired the innovation? What what happened or was there a pivotal moment where you realized the need for a, something like Emoti to do what it is that we'll end up describing to the audience in a minute, of course? Yes, absolutely. So I had been practicing a number of years as an applied psychologist, and I attended a conference, the American Psychological Association's practice organization, uh, dedicated to practitioners as opposed to ac academics and researchers. And I sat in on a panel discussion <clears throat> where several psychologists were talking about what became eventually to be known as measurement-based care. And that is simply quantification of critical variables that are that help to inform service delivery, that help to inform improvement of service, that help to uh, render data that can be used for predictive purposes, like trying to predict which patients are most likely to improve, which patients might terminate unilaterally early without continuation of service, those types of things. And this was all in, in psychology, this was all around the difficulty of taking what is a very intimate, personal, and often esoteric practice, psychotherapy, and translating it into useful data points. And so uh, these researchers were developing instruments to capture certain types of experiences that people report uh, when they seek services and along the course of care, including the quality of the therapeutic alliance, their sense of comfort in the office, what types of difficulties they have been experiencing, what sorts of goals they're trying to achieve. 
trying to take those things and turn them into quantifiable data that could be used to monitor progress and to help the clinicians to improve their service delivery and the quality of care along with the patient's experience. And I got very excited. This was many, many years ago, and this was new to me. Uh, I had never been in the habit, I of course used diagnostic instruments that required folks to fill out questionnaires to report whether they had been experiencing difficulties with their mood, with their behaviors around eating, substance use, etc. But I had not been using anything that would help me to actually capture and quantify and monitor their progress. So I relied on them to tell me whether or not they were improving. I had my own clinical impressions as well, but none of that was being translated into data. These researchers were at the forefront of trying to develop that technology to capture and measure these things. How to make it subjective, objective, basically, how to make experience something we can track. And yes. Does that have to do with how do we know that what we're doing is working for a patient? Exactly, and to allow us to compare our own performance across time, to compare our own performance across patients and to compare our own performance to that of other clinicians treating people with similar concerns, treating people who were similar or different in meaningful ways than those that we were seeing, that sort of thing. Exactly. Yes. Interesting. Well, it wasn't an Einstein that said not everything that counts can be counted and not everything that can be counted counts. <laughs> we have to take these things into account. And I know sometimes uh, in the practice of using systems thinking for organizational development, you have to bring in subjective variables like morale that yeah. the scientists in the group might say, well, you can't objectively measure that. But it doesn't mean it's not really important. And what it looks like to me from here is that you're developing a tool to better translate subjective experience into something that can be useful for seeing change in time and for making diagnoses and for um, perhaps prescribing treatment based on that. Is that correct? Yes. And measuring outcomes, helping to ensure that we are achieving the outcomes that we intend to and using best practices to get there. Interesting. Has there been any use of anything that can correlate things that are objectively measurable without having to depend on subjective reporting like biofeedback with this yet? Uh, we have not done any of that work ourselves, although uh, it must be said that the type of data that we are capturing and measuring quantifying and turning into useful insights absolutely is set up to be combined with other data types, such as that which would come from wearable devices, through biofeedback sessions, through objective measurement of uh, weight or of food intake or of exercise minutes and heart rate variability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I was just thinking as I was uh, taking my own practice experience of it a few minutes ago. Um, and it's interesting, it's real easy. And, and it's a lot easier than like you were mentioning earlier when we were speaking before we recorded a, having to just rate yourself on a one to 10 scale. Instead, just move this slider over to where you think you are. But it makes me wonder what some of these correlate with 
blood pressure, heart rate, breathing pattern, things yes. that could be objectively measured and brought into the loop somehow, maybe as a calibration exercise. I'm just thinking out loud. It's a very fascinating product to me. Thank you. It, it is fascinating because when I began adopting the well-validated instruments to capture the patient's experiences across time, I've, I learned something, and this was part of the pivotal moment. Uh, people generally don't enjoy filling out questionnaires. Seriously? So I, they, I love I, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, uh, I actually observed patients using these gold standard instruments that had been designed and validated by other researchers. Mm -hmm. And these were typically set up with what we call Likert scale uh, reporting uh, methodology. How depressed have you been feeling? Zero to five, zero, not at all, five, extremely. And I watched people skipping through these multi-item questionnaires, some of them having 10 items, some of them having 45 items, and they would circle zeros on everything. They came in for a psychotherapy appointment, they'd circle zeros on everything. Well, I don't score zeros on everything on my best day. And so I would say, you know, uh, that's interesting. It looks like you're doing fabulously. No, I'm not. I'm, I, I'm, it, my life is terrible. But you circled zeros on everything. Yeah, because I hate your stupid survey. Oh, yeah. Do I have to fill this out? Well, yes, it's, it's part of our clinical procedures. It's all part of our quality assurance methods. Yeah, well, I don't enjoy doing this. Okay. I would watch people circle all fives on everything and making themselves look like absolute train wrecks. But that was not actually the case. Long story short, I noticed that I was not getting valid data from a lot of the people who were filling these things out. Other folks would take 20 minutes to fill out what should have been a five minute questionnaire because they would circle a three and then they would cross that out and circle a four and cross that out and go back and boldface the number three and then start writing in the margins, trying to explain why, well, it wasn't really a three, it wasn't really a four or they would flip the page over and start writing a narrative, you know. And I, I literally had one patient at one time look up from the clipboard and he said, Doc, I don't feel in five point gradations. I said, yeah, I, I understand, but you know, this is the state of the art and, and we're trying to do a good job here. He said, I, I get it. I said, just do your best. And he did, and we got through that. But that the biased data, the fact that people were not, in many cases, filling it out faithfully, that they weren't properly reading the items because they may have been confusing or too lengthy, or simply the questionnaire was too lengthy, or the whole process was tedious, and it was actually perceived as a barrier to what they really wanted, which was to be able to talk, to be able to actually relate with me, to spend their time doing the work rather than spending their time filling out questionnaires. And I thought... There just has to be a better way. There's a small number of common denominator issues that people typically report, irrespective of the specific details as to why they feel the way they do. It was the feelings that mattered most to them. Those were the things they most wanted to alter, not because the behaviors weren't important, but the behaviors were outflows of the feelings. Mm -hmm. Feelings our primary motivators and drivers of our decisions and our behaviors. And that small cluster, I thought, wouldn't it be nice if I could just hand them a tablet device with some graphical depictions of feelings. Here's a depiction of depression. Here's one of anxiety. Here's one of pain. Here's one of fatigue. 
and allow them to just dial that image up and down in terms of the intensity of the, of the, uh, of the expression and let them show me how they've been feeling rather than trying to quantify for themselves by circling a three. Wouldn't it be nice if they had something like a mirror and they could dial it up and go, no, that's, I don't feel that bad. And they dial it down and go, no, I feel worse than that. And then reach that Goldilocks moment of right there. That's just about how I've been feeling lately. And then stop, move on to the next one. Depression, eh, scale it up and down right about there. Okay, move on. Anxiety, scale it up and down right about there. And the quantification would happen in the background. They would not see numbers. They would use what we call a digital affect mirror to show us how they feel. And that would be useful data in and of itself. And then in the background at the database, there would be a quantification of what they dialed in. And our, our emojis render uh, scaled values on a zero to 100 scale, each one of them. And then we translate that into a composite score for everything that they have entered. We also use it in combinatorial analytics to predict against various outcomes or uh, progressions. We combine it with social determinants of health data. We can combine it with all manner of other types of data, like from wearables, uh, from uh, clinical data, from their charts, et cetera, and produce a whole new data set that represents these core critical normal feelings that when they become abnormal because of the intensity, because of the duration, because of the impact on their decision-making and their behaviors, they become of true clinical relevance. I see an interesting thread here, and I'm, I'm going to dive in if you don't mind, as the listener advocate thinking from the position of what does this mean to me? I'm a leader, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an innovator myself. What can I learn from this? And one of the interesting threads I'm seeing so far is something that's fascinating to me anyways, is the nature of self-assessment itself. And I'm somewhat familiar with the concept of self-awareness and self-regulation. And this is in part from when I was an athlete, I actually worked with a sports psychologist who'd worked with a couple of U.S. Olympic teams and we use a visualization exercise of imagining a meter corresponding to activation level before I did a heavy set of squats. For instance, I would dial it up to a 10 and I'd feel my energy increasing and my focus narrowing, my muscles tensing, and it's just energy increasing. And then I turn it back down, which leads me to question um, about the effect of by monitoring yourself this way, does that not lead to regulating these things more consciously? Because if you got to rate yourself on the scale, you got to at least think about what it'd be like to be at the best end of the scale and create that model in your mind of what I'd be like if I wasn't depressed or if I felt great and things like that. Absolutely. One of the wonderful side effects of this method, this intensely visual method, which by the way, holds worldwide promise because of being more language agnostic and more culturally fair than traditional methods. Mm -hmm. This process of tuning in with yourself with the aid of this technology to actually inquire of yourself. Yeah, exactly how anxious have I been? Exactly how lonely have I been? Hmm, what is my pain rating when I look at this thing 
Oh, okay. I know I don't feel quite that much pain, but I feel more pain than that. Uh, let me fine tune right there. That's about how much pain I've been feeling. And to think back, oh, well, you know, it is worse than it was the last time I filled this out. And we have designed this for repeated administrations because it's really important to capture the variability of these things across time or the lack thereof, because these are feelings that should vary across time. And so when we capture data that suggests, you know, the variability is actually pretty minimal while the intensity is pretty high, that's bad. No one wants to feel like that in a durable way. No one wants to go on and on. These are all feelings that we are naturally motivated to try to reduce, to try to bring down the intensity of stress, anxiety, loneliness, irritability, depression, pain, fatigue, and physical illness or malaise. None of those feel good. And we are naturally motivated to try to bring those down. And the big problem is many of the ways that we try to reduce our awareness of those feelings, the intensity of those feelings is actually bad for us. Substance abuse is one of the easiest examples. One of the easiest ways for us to blot out a negative feeling is to ingest a chemical that changes how our mind operates and our perceptions are registered. And okay, so that works for the moment, but there's often such a high price that's being paid in terms of our ability to relate to others, our ability to get our work done, and the long-term impact on our health. Well, something I noticed about it, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't have it in front of me now, and I just had a brief introduction, is that it focuses a lot on states that we don't want, but could it not also be used for states that we do want, like confidence, feeling highly energized, being feeling in control, having a being able to focus, which is a big issue in today's society because the the internet, social media is, is trained a generation or two to be very distractible. Absolutely. You you just touched on something critically important. Those eight key affects that I just described. Uh, first, let me say, when I use the term affect, I am referring to the collection of emotions, moods, and other subjective experiences that have an emotional nature. Pain is a subjective experience. We cannot measure that objectively. There's no dipstick that we can stick in someone's ear to measure their pain level. And only a moment's reflection will highlight for you that pain feels bad. That doesn't feel good. I am motivated to reduce or avoid pain when I can. I am motivated to reduce or eliminate depression if it's possible. It's normal to feel sad, even depressed at times, as in grief. And those things can be intensely distracting. So we call all of these drags. These are things that all exert a drag against a number of things that we need to be able to do in life, like be productive at work, relate well with others. Irritability is a key example that gets in the way of being able to relate well with others because we wind up pushing people away when we're irritable. And usually that's the very last thing that we want. We want to have close, well-connected relationships. Our irritability gets in the way of that. Our depression can get in the way of that. Our anxiety can get in the way of that. Our pain can even get in the way of that, right? 
It impairs our ability to follow treatment plans. These things get in the way of what we call treatment adherence. Um, I'm not motivated to get up and exercise to recover from my surgery because it hurts. So I'd rather just sit and minimize the pain, but actually that's the wrong solution. You right. need to exercise that joint in order to help it in its recovery. You need to do the physical therapy exercises that have been prescribed. These things often motivate us to do things that actually harm us in the short and in the long term. They all have physiological artifacts that contribute to maladaptive coping efforts. They may be symptoms of actual disorders and diseases. They may appear to be mental health artifacts when really they are correlates of uh, of, of underlying fundamental, quote unquote, physical disability, physical malady, physical disease. Well, and it it seems that by having the increased self-awareness it opens the opportunity for questions like, can you imagine how your life would be different if you rated very well on these measures? You're not now. Yes. And I imagine that would also assist um, people like yourself who might be counseling people who who are prone to addictive behaviors to have a little more self-awareness about not doing things that damage the whole system while giving temporary relief. 100%. And one of the joys in my actual day-to-day practice is being able to print out a temporal graph of their progress across time and be able to sit down with them and say, hey, check this out. You started at this composite of all of this affective load, these negative experiences way up here. And look, we started working together and you started to get better pretty quickly. And there's this nice dose response curve. And look how you've been doing lately. You've been holding at a relatively low overall level. And these two affects that were bothering you the most when you came in, look how much we've helped you to bring those down. And think about the skills that you have developed across time that have rendered those results now. It might be time to fire me. I always tell my patients, my job is to get fired. My job is to work myself out of a job. My job is to help you get to the point where you smile and fire me and shake hands with me and say, you know, I'm really glad I've done this and I'm done. And then two years later, you struggle to remember my name, but you still remember everything that we did to help you in that progress and in that recovery so that hopefully you never need to darken my door again. Yes, problem solved. You mentioned the potential of using the emoting method to capture things on the lift side as opposed to the drag side. Things like self-esteem, self-efficacy, motivation levels. Absolutely, that potential is there, and we intend to tackle those things further down the road in our roadmap. We decided to start with these more negative experiences because the scientific literature is much more complete and much more uh, sophisticated and thorough as to the deleterious health effects of these this collection than it is on the positive side. Well, that's part of the paradigm of modern medicine, though, isn't it? Modern medicine is very much focused on break it, fix it when it's broken, so focus on what's broken. But then you've got the generative change aspect of how high is high? How happy can you be? How productive? 
how good can you feel? How, how large a contribution can you make to others as a result of this? And another thread, I'm trying to capture some threads here that are really relevant to things like strategic thought leadership. Another one, feelings are drivers. And that's very important to anybody in any kind of influence, whether they're looking to engineer positive social change with a philosophy about how we treat each other um, and impact regulation or impact you know, the laws as a result of that, or, or whether it's bringing innovation to market and changing. Uh, people make decisions based on feelings, in my experience, and when you look at it from a sales and persuasion and marketing perspective, emotions drive decisions. And then the logic just kind of comes in to support those emotions. <laughs> you know, we build a logical argument so we can do what we feel like doing. One of the uh, key developments in neuroscience and affective science uh, has been the realization that the longstanding bifurcation of emotions and cognition or emotions and rationality, if you will, is absolutely false. They are not separable. They are not separable. There are some great researchers like Antonio Damasio mm -hmm. uh, and others who have done a great deal of work of demonstrating that thought and feelings are more like bunt cake where it's all mixed together rather than the traditional view of one being a layer with another layer on top or one being beneficial and the other being deleterious. Those old models are wrong. Our minds work in concert. It is an orchestra. And so what we traditionally refer to as feelings and thoughts is an artificial dichotomy, an artificial bifurcation. Yeah, makes perfect sense. Fascinating research of the impact of emotions on decision-making. And yes, it's true that sometimes the emotions can color or bias the thought processes in ways that don't work very well. But it is equally true that the thoughts also inform the decision-making in ways that are beneficial and they are not truly uh, divisible. You cannot pull those apart and have a, an actual mind. And this relates also to the concept of overall whole person well-being, overall whole person health. And we focus on these negatives because we also have a value on not bothering people in the process of data collection. I started this with the insight that wouldn't it be nicer if I could just show them these depictions and let them make the adjustments and I would capture the data in the back end. But equally important, I wanted to minimize the footprint, minimize the amount of time that I require of them to provide this critical data. So we're capturing these things in 90 seconds. This is not a lengthy questionnaire. This is designed to be expedient and engaging and simple, easy to do, um, and to get critical variables first and foremost, and then follow on with additional inquiry and questions and even uh, other assessment tools if needed. But it's because of really strong intertwined effect of these feelings on decision-making and on behavior that we decided to focus on this very small, but highly intensively important class of what is referred to as the affective determinants of health.
And eventually, yes, we do want to do a better job using this same method of capturing things like quality of life, satisfaction, self-efficacy, which is the sense of one's ability, one's one's sense of one's own ability to be effective in the world, which is well, not the so same. Many, there's so many contexts where I could see it being helpful. I I, I do some executive coaching. I yes. really enjoy it. It's a bring out the best in people and help them focus on things that are meaningful to them and, and having self-assessment where it's like here's your baseline but if you could design any outcome you wanted for yourself where would you like to be rating yourself on these things in a few months yes. how would that make things different and what do you anticipate being different maybe in controllable lifestyle behaviors so much of it boils down to lifestyle absolutely absolutely as we're all about self-mastery, you know? And so to step back a little bit, again, touch on a thread I think would be really relevant to our listeners. Uh, you're in the midst of a journey of bringing an innovation to market. And bringing an innovation to market is not just about having some a better way, but it's about making that better way meaningful to the people who can make use of it and adopt the technology. Yes. So what kinds of things are you involved with that might be meaningful and helpful to our listener about helping educate the people that you can help with this about how it's relevant to them? Absolutely. So obviously there are implications for mental health care. This is designed to be a method for clinicians to be able to get baselines and monitor progress and measure outcomes. It also is intensely applicable in medical traditional medical settings especially primary care settings did you know that various studies suggest that anywhere between 60 and 75 percent of primary care visits involve at least one highly salient behavioral health artifact people are not just coming in and complaining about uh you know ingrown toenail a sore throat a sore back they're also coming in describing feeling depressed feeling anxious, feeling stressed. And too frequently, this special collection of items is not being asked. Too few people are being asked these questions. So our goals are to help make these things so easy to adopt and so easy to implement into practices like this to capture where most people are going first to tell anyone about how they're struggling. So let's get these questions asked, let's capture the data, and then let's make it useful for those dots to be able to consider these as potential symptoms of disorders and diseases, but also to talk about lifestyle modifications, to look at these with their impact on adhering to treatment plans like medications that they should be taking, and also to consider making referrals, not just to mental health care services, but also to social services and to community resources and to digital therapeutics and a wide variety of things that can help people get better. Our uh, medical director on our team likes to say, how we feel affects how we heal. He's absolutely correct. We're also seeing folks coming to us and saying, you know, this would be marvelously useful in education settings. We'd like to see our kids uh, be able to use this. You know, they're the digital natives, right? They expect things to look and function like this. They don't have the time. They don't want to spend a lot of time filling out lengthy questionnaires. 
but give them something that is digital in nature, highly visual, highly engaging, and let them use that as a way to tune in to how they've been feeling and use that as a way to reach out and to say, you know, I'm struggling, I could use some help, make a more expedient, immediate connection to their school counselors or to off-campus providers through telehealth platforms, et cetera. Uh, we're seeing a lot of interest in the employer space. Obviously, these things are impediments to productivity. They are fuel for absenteeism and presenteeism. They may be associated with elevated health, uh, excuse me, uh, workplace injuries. And so we're fascinated to look at those sorts of implications in the employer space. Many of the employers are self-funded for their healthcare costs. And so they're bearing all of that risk and they need to do a better job of identifying who is at risk, who is already suffering, which resources are going to help to bend the curve most effectively. So you're seeing a lot of use cases where it can be extremely helpful for people achieving the things that they want to achieve, obviously. What do you see as being the, the biggest obstacle to widespread adoption and how are you addressing things to overcome that obstacle? The biggest obstacle I perceive is momentum and inertia. Getting people to do something different than what they're already accustomed to doing, what right. they're comfortable doing. Um, oftentimes people realize that what they're doing isn't working, but they don't know of something better. They're not comfortable trying to make a change. They don't want to disrupt workflows. They don't want to have to go through a new training period for their staff. Uh, they may be concerned that if they admit something better is needed, they're also admitting that they made a less than optimal decision last year or seven years ago, and that that might uh, come back to haunt them in some way. It's momentum and inertia, interrupting what people are already doing and getting their attention to show them that there is a better way, that it's easy to implement, that it's you know almost frictionless. But just getting people's attention and getting them to consider to do something different than what they're comfortable with, not unlike what I experienced with individual patients. Uh, yeah, obviously. And of course, feelings are drivers. So <laughs> yeah. the emotional component of that, that would, um, if, you, if you don't make the change, it could get painful because you'll get left out of an innovation that's going to make things better for everybody who adopts it. Yes, sir. So yeah. what, what are we doing? Well, one is uh, we share our vision. Our vision is for affective determinants of health to be understood for every person. Uh, you can you can see that I was heading in the direction of saying, gosh, you know, this is something that's awfully important for people to understand about themselves and for people who are in a position to help, who have a vested interest in people feeling better and functioning better. This is a uh, small footprint, lowest common denominator set of variables that are just so important to understand in everyday life, in healthcare settings, in employment settings, in education settings. You start to get to the point where, gosh, you know, it's hard to think of where it wouldn't be relevant. And so, of course, one of our challenges is, well, you can't boil the ocean, right? You have to bear down and start somewhere. You have to get traction somewhere. You have to start small and build out from there. And that's tough to do sometimes when you've got something as exciting as, as this is. And you can hear that I am an evangelist, not just for Modi as a method, but for the domain of affective determinants of health 
And to get me talking, I'll, I'll talk for three hours, but I have to remember to get back down to the basics of, you know, this is probably entirely new to you. And all you have to do is use an emoji to realize, oh, okay, this is cool, but it's much more than cool. We have to also demonstrate the value. So we demonstrate that what we're doing is validated in a number of ways. The depression emoji, for example, correlates very well with one of the gold standard screening instruments for depression that is deployed in primary care. This collection of items does have a predictive bearing against workplace turnover, burnout, presenteeism. We have to have that science to be able to demonstrate these things to, in order to get people's attention and to help convince them that there's a better, more expedient way. And that's an education process and it's also a marketing process. Yeah, absolutely. Well, those things can be concurrent, of course, in our age of content marketing, where marketing is education. People, yes, sir. people spend six to seven hours a day online. And, yes, sir. And uh, people research before major purchases. And I'm sure if somebody's a professional, they research before major purchases <laughs> in the direction of the practice. So to wrap things up, what are the top three things that you've learned in your journey of bringing a Modi to market that would be relevant to entrepreneurs and business people who may have their own innovation to bring to market, first of all. And second, if someone's listening to this and you want to find out more about Emoti and your company, how would they get a hold of you or take the next step to engage? Let me uh, tell you, ADOH, A-D-O-H, scientific.com is the website where you can learn all about us, schedule a demo. I'll be happy to speak with you personally. Let me go back to the top three things. The first is everyday observations. Everyday observations are a fountainhead for creativity and innovation. Just noticing what you're doing during a day, what your clients, customers, patients are doing, and how could you make that simpler? How could you make that easier? How could you make that more useful? If you could do all three at the same time, you're probably on to something. The second is persistence. Nothing, uh, I, it's one of our former presidents, I forget which one said, uh, nothing succeeds like persistence. It may have been Theodore Roosevelt. Um, that is absolutely called for. Being an innovator, entrepreneur is taxing. It is stressful. It rarely goes along the Goldilocks stories that we love to read about. Uh, it's, it's tough and you've got to genuinely believe in what you have and what you're trying to achieve while also having a balanced view to realize that, well, maybe your favorite baby isn't necessarily the best idea. Maybe it needs some modification. Maybe it needs a little grooming. Maybe you need to admit, uh, well, it's a great idea, but the market isn't ready or uh, I'm charging too much. The persistence and the ability to learn iteratively along the journey and to listen with an open mind and an open heart to the feedback from your colleagues, from your market, etc. And I suppose the third thing is not to lose sight of the ultimate goal. What is your ultimate goal? Are you clear about what your ultimate goal is? And can you translate that into small, achievable steps? 
Because if you remain focused only on the ultimate goal and that's the only thing that's going to satisfy you, you are at higher risk for failure because you've got to be content with taking smaller steps and counting the small successes and learning from the failures along the way. Uh, it relates back to what I said earlier about um, avoiding the problem of trying to boil the ocean. I'm having to learn that every day. Awesome. Fantastic advice. And for you, the listener, I'm going to link to adohscientific.com and any other media that's relevant to this on the episode page on thoughtleadershipstudio.com. So if you're listening on an app, that link will be in the episode description. Dr. Sullivan, I appreciate your time. This has been fascinating. I'm very happy to spend this time with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. My pleasure. Have a great rest of your day. Take care, Chris. Thought Leadership Studio. So thanks again for listening to Thought Leadership Studio. I'm your host, Chris McNeil, strategic thought leadership, coach and consultant, inventor of the thought process of strategic thought leadership. And I hope that you found as much insight as I did in my interview with Dr. Brian Sullivan and the things like seizing the opportunity for innovation when you see friction where it can be resolved how to bring about a paradigm shift, how to self-regulate yourself by self-monitoring, and how this type of measurement that turns a subjective into objective can assist with that. So again, thanks for listening. Make sure you go to the episode page on thoughtleadershipstudio.com if you are listening on an app. The link is in the episode description. There's lots of resources there. There's a synopsis of the interview. And there's also a link to get the free Marketer's Guide to Strategic Thought Leadership, which will help you with the building blocks of your own strategic thought leadership. So appreciate you listening. Look forward to seeing you next week. Have a great one until then. Thought Leadership Studio.